Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 54 for August 24th, 2006, Blue Pill. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. Once again, I am on a boat. <laughs> last time we did, last time we did this, I got a number of messages saying, "Wow, how do you Skype from a boat?" Well, we don't. We record these ahead of time. That's all. <laughs> Steve yep, Gibson to, to work around our schedule. <laughs> yeah, actually, I think I'm not on a boat. I think I might be in Canada. I don't know. I know all I know is I'm not here right now. <laughs> but Steve is, and we are here to talk tech. Yep. Uh, and security in particular, and a lot of great response to last week's uh, episode on virtualization. Do we do we have another? You said we would do a little more on that. Oh, yeah, we have a few more episodes. I do want to mention that I got some great feedback from people who have installed and are using NoScript. You know, we talked oh, about... Oh, I installed the, it, yes. Yeah, we talked about the serious problems of JavaScript. And, of course, I'm anti-scripting in general because I think it's just fundamentally a bad idea to let websites you visit run code in your machine and people are like oh yeah there's that gibson you know he's all freaked out about you know this stuff that's not a problem but then these these uh researchers came up with a way of of javascript scanning people's internal networks which caught a lot of people's attention i mean it's not like the end of the world but it, it further demonstrates that just as a concept i mean philosophically Having scripting enabled is not as secure as not having it enabled. So, so you know, there there's a way of configuring IE that we've talked about in an explorer where it automatically switches its security based on whether the the site you're going to is in a, in your trusted zone or not. And similarly, no script for Firefox is an add-on that provides similar functionality. And I got a bunch of feedback from people who are using it and just feel good to know that their scripting is off unless they choose to turn it on. Well, I installed it, but I so many sites broke, I just turned it back on. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a tough one. Um, and, 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 and as a number of people pointed out to me, including uh, Randall Schwartz, who is our re- resident uh, naysayer, uh, but a security expert, and certainly somebody I trust, that the, the, the ex- exploit uh, isn't too hazardous as long as you've renamed, you know, changed the password in your uh, router. If you have nor, if you, in other words, if you've pursued normal, uh, rec- those kinds of security recommendations that you make all the time, you're not too vulnerable, right? So, right. I guess it's, a, it's as always with security, it's a balance between. Well, uh, but remember, he's responding to this specific instance, right? And there may be which, more, which wasn't no, which wasn't known right. a few weeks ago, right? So, what else is there? Yeah. I mean, so, so what I'm yeah. saying is just you know, there are things that are that are clear policies that regard security. I mean, for example, it used to be that people had their networks wide open and they closed ports when there were problems. Okay, bad idea. Instead, have your system closed and open ports that you need. So, like, you know, there was that inversion. And similarly, we know even if you think you have a server 
a, a service which is receiving packets that's safe, you know, it's just it's not good to have it running if you don't need it. And of course, that lesson we learned with the universal plug and play exploit that was just uncovered a few weeks ago. At, at, well, actually, it was originally uncovered back in February by the EI guys. Again, another perfect example of where running with a secure policy just closes you down in in general and prevents unknown problems from 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 occurring so a similar policy is scripting is bad i mean yes i know it's it's virtually necessary these days but it's it's from a security standpoint as opposed to a convenience and features standpoint which i understand it provides you know it's it's bad. I'm turning it back on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least it exists well, as an option, and it's a really good option, I have to say. It works but, very well. But you are a Mac guy, Leo, and so in general, you're, you know, the the attack target size for the Mac is substantially right. lo- smaller than it is for, for a, a Windows-based, you know, IE system. or And, of course, Firefox is substantially more secure than, than IE, just based on the past. And, and, and with security, that's what we have to go on. You cannot declare. Oh, and in fact, this is, I've got a perfect example of, of that in, in, in this episode. But you, you cannot declare that something is secure. History needs to prove its, its security. <laughs> right. So. Very good point. Uh, it's that positive versus negative. Yep, you're absolutely yep. right. Yep. And one last thing is we mentioned uh, the sale of Hamachi to log me in. Um, I had some dialogue with Alex Pankratov, the the father of Hamachi, uh, who you remember, you know, we contacted and talked to um, back when we discovered Hamachi, uh, because several people asked about that Hamachi server we referred to. Um, and I was imp- impressed, Leo, that you remembered there was such a thing, because I hadn't heard of it or, or remembered about it for a long time. But the idea was that that when we were originally learning about Hamachi, the idea was that there would be this this server that people could run themselves to like set up their own Hamachi network and not use Alex's central servers to do all of the liaison between the Hamachi agents. So a couple of people wrote in saying, hey, you know, if Hamachi's going to go into un- unknown limbo condition with with the sale of LogMeIn, I mean, you know, like we never know what's going to happen when one of these things happens. It's like how the sysinternal site, you couldn't get to for a few days when the announcement of their of their purchase by Microsoft was made because everyone was frantically sucking down all the cool utilities uh, that that Mark had, had written before you know maybe they would go away so anyway um, uh, what what Alex explained was first of all he really vetted the log me in people carefully i mean his same concern for security and that they that they un, that the people there understand like the rights of users and privacy rights and all that i mean he's really comfortable with them as the new parent for hamachi so he wanted to make that clear and he said however that the server project never got off the ground oh, it was so i was mistaken in, in pointing people that way well no i mean i'd forgotten about it completely so i was impressed that you even remembered but um 
it was at best in at sort of at alpha level mm. development and it never would have been he explained a software only offering due to concerns about piracy i mean it's just you know hamachi's so popular if he had released a you know some service or or hamachi server software it would be you know all over the world in in no time. So, so it would have always been tied to a to some sort of hardware platform. So that you know you had to buy an, a Hamachi appliance from 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 Alex and company in order to set up your own network, um, as opposed to just being something that you could download. So, anyway, the server, while not dead, it it really it never existed. And he did try to explain the benefits of it to the LogMeIn folks, and you know they now have it. So whatever it is that's Hamachi is now the property of LogMeIn. But there, you know there is at this point no alternative for people other than to you know follow Hamachi over to LogMeIn with Alex's assurances that I mean he he really feels as good about them as he could. Oh, and by the way, and I was saying, wow, Alex. Three million users? And he says, uh, well, that's old news. Actually, we're more like 3.9. Wow. Wow. And, and, and he, he said, ought to be sending you a gift of <laughs> some kind. <laughs> well, he, he, he thanked us again for, you know, discovering them early and really putting them on the map. You know, I guess his... His, uh, I think his wife was giving him a hard time for months, you know, o- over the title of our podcast, Hamachi Rocks. So, yeah. Well, I... I, uh, I, I... I just re- again, and I'm just going to reiterate, and I'll stop. But uh, that just was why I like open source solutions. I wish there were an yeah. open source solution as easy to use as Hamachi. Um, that's the thing is the OpenVPN is out there, but it's as, as we all know, it's a oh boy difficult, yep. it's a nightmare to get going. And, and, and I'll say again that I've you know it's funny my prototype menu. Remember we talked last week about the 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 script free. Uh, CSS only menu that I spent l- almost two months developing. Um, it's really taken off, Leo. A thousand people a day are are going to wow. that wow. prototype menu page, and I've had people saying, "Well, but it doesn't uh, it doesn't validate." So it's like, okay, fine. So I went over and it was, it was I, I added my standard GRC footer stuff, which has all kinds of old HTML in it that just you know it generated 112 HTML validation errors. It's like, okay, I'm just gonna get rid of that. So I took that off, and then I fixed a couple little things, and then now it does validate. So. Uh, but I mean, it's people are really interested in the concept of a script-free, robust CSS-only menu, and I mean, a thousand people a day are are looking at that page and and sucking out the CSS and adapting it to them to their own purposes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really that's uh, that's great. Good job. I think you may end up. Uh, nobody would expect this of Steve, as you know. Oh, a pre- premier web developer, but you may end up being uh, going down in the Hall of Fame as a CSS developer of all things. <laughs> all right, so that's catching up on past episodes. Any other? Yep. Any other past business? Nope. I think that brings us current. So, what is our topic for today, my friend? Today, blue pill. Oh, I'm excited. I'm excited. This is yep. very interesting for a number of reasons. It's interesting. There's a red pill and there's a blue pill. Yep. And, and uh, also it's interesting because it's one of the few women in this field. Is, yep. Jo- yeah. 
Joanna Rutowska is uh, she's been working with rootkit technology for years and has published a bunch of papers about you know rootkitting modern OSs uh, means of detecting means of exploit no she, I mean she's like she's a pure security researcher in in you know in the best sense of the word because she's she's working to to develop the the concepts of rootkits in in a in a context of you know what we're doing now and publishing her results the the thing that made so much uh noise recently was about 2 months ago she she published a paper explaining blue pill and I mean, and then and then on uh, two conferences, uh, SciScan, and then of course the recent Black Hat conference, she gave presentations where she demonstrated this. Um, we're talking about it because it is right in our virtual machine um, series that we're doing. It's about virtual machine technology, and what what really raised eyebrows was her claim that it was undetectable. And and that's really the thing that sets it off from prior rootkit stuff. You know that we we talked about rootkits extensively early in Security Now in, in our series. Um, and in fact, I would encourage anybody who hasn't read our early treatment of rootkits to to you know grab those past episodes and and. Um, and take a listen to them because there was, you know, a lot of great stuff there. And I don't want to like completely uh, restate everything that was said, but I do want to talk about, you know, what it is that Blue Pill is and how it's different from prior rootkits because it's it's fundamentally different. And in fact, Joanna has been like responding to people ever since her report because many people don't get what it is that she's done and what it is that she's saying and so there's been lots of misconception you know slash dot of course went insane over this and i you know dig had threads and you know as, as you know leo when i even said the word blue pill he's like oh, oh yeah 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 so so okay what happened is um and and we touched on this already i talked about how there is a clear evolution in What's happening with virtual machine technology? One of the things that's happening is that our next generation hardware platforms are incorporating much more um, explicit support for virtualization, which is which is something that, for example, we talked about VMware last week. VMware, a lot of their technology is about working around the lack of support i mean the lack of like robust support for virtualization and making their vmware product offerings work anyway well what what amd has done and this is the platform on which joanna's blue pill technology operates uh, amd has something called uh, their svm pacifica virtualization technology that's part of the uh, Athlon 64 and the uh, Turion 64 chips it's it's essentially an extension of the x64 architecture that AMD it's like a proprietary extension that AMD has added which which adds 
much deeper support for virtualization. Now, Intel is coming along. They've had their Vanderpool chip as, as sort of their, their next generation moving forward. Now it's been renamed VT. So, so Intel's next generation chips will have this so-called VT technology, which is their equivalent. Um, in both cases, this stuff allows software to to do a much essentially a much better job of of virtualizing the environment well what joanna realized and then wrote proof of concept code for was that an os running on this next generation hardware so first of all no one with 32 bit code uh, with 32 bit platform hardware no no nobody with 32 bit AMD or Intel hardware has anything to worry about. I mean, it just this is all next generation hardware platform requirement. But any operating system, Joanne uh, implemented hers on the current beta. I think it was beta three of Vista. You know, Microsoft's next generation machine that's going to keep us so busy in the future. Um, any operating system running on top of this hardware. Has a problem that that it's uh, in that it's possible for client software to assume the role of a so-called hypervisor. Um, um, hypervisor is one of the new jargons that has been been adopted, sort of to uh, to explain this notion of something running even above a supervisory level. So, so in general, the operating system is called the supervisor since it supervises the operation of the various client programs that are, are running within it. So hypervisor is meant to imply something above the level of the operating system. And we've sort of touched on that when we've talked about, for example, VMware's uh, ESX solution where you run it and then you install operating systems in it so it's a hypervisor running above the level or below the level depending on which way you draw your diagram um, uh, um, of the regular supervisory operating systems well it turns out that the code joanna wrote uh the first thing that i just made me grin was that it completely bypassed i mean just didn't even care about Microsoft's Vista new kernel protection stuff. Microsoft is going to great measures to make Vista more secure. Uh, We know, because we understand security, that it's going to take them a while to get the bugs out of all that. Well, one of the things that Vista requires by default is that all drivers be signed. Um, this driver signing requirement of Vista is very controversial because it means that you need to have a digital signature, and digital signatures are not free. So it's you know it, it, people are complaining that it's open source hostile, it's it's free software hostile, and so forth. Microsoft is saying, well, yeah, sorry, <laughs> but you want security or not? Right. So anyway, so the, the, so. If you what, want open source, write it for an open source operating system. Anyway. Ex- exactly. You know, I mean, come on. And, and, and so what Joanna demonstrated was that you leveraging the hardware platform and this, this Pacifica virtualization technology, she could 
with with Vista's with all of Vista's security up and running, just cut right through it and and slip essentially her, if this is sort of a super rootkit, she could slip her rootkit into the system and it was undetectable. And and undetectableness was the real thesis behind what she was talking about because and now we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the, the the rootkit and the normal rootkit technology and why it's detectable she makes the point the, um in her paper and and this is the whole point of what she did that that rootkits have traditionally relied on some sort of kludge or hack of some sort they're 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 hacking the kernel for example if a rootkit wants to hide itself so that it just cannot be seen by by you know anyone looking for malicious code running in the machine I and mean, that's the whole point of a rootkit most operating systems if not all will somewhere they'll have a list of running processes and so and and a, a list is a programming term meaning uh, and it's also called a linked list meaning that that There'll be a, a structure that that manages and represents a process, which will contain in it a pointer to the next structure for the next process, which will contain a pointer to the next structure for the next process. And so it, it's a series of, of these pointers form links that link this list together. So, so, for example, when we run Task Manager in Windows or you run Top in Unix, what what the operating system does is it has a, a a pointer to the first process in the list and it then it enumerates these processes by basically by going to each one reading the pointer for the next one and then using that pointer to uh, to essentially follow this linked list or this chain of of processes so, for example, what a rootkit will do is as soon as it starts up and is for that brief moment, it's on this list of processes that are running. The first thing it needs to do is hide itself. So with, with knowledge of the operating system at the kernel level, which is, which is below the knowledge that you would normally have that the operating system publishes in its API, which is what normal programs use. The, the, the whole point is the rootkit has knowledge sort of of the under, underlying technology of the specific operating system it's running on. It would itself follow this list of processes until it finds itself. Then it would go to the one before it, that was linking to it and instead it would change that link to point to the one after it essentially unlinking it from this list of processes now when you run task manager or top it just doesn't appear because the operating system follows these links and basically you've sort of created this this lost process the, the sort of you know it's off the reservation it's no, it's no longer in the accounting system of the operating system, which the operating system 
inherently trusts. I mean, that's these are the structures that the operating system uses for managing processes. So, so a rootkit is able to, by having knowledge of the kernel, it's able to play games. Now, one of the other things that we've talked about um, earlier in, in our podcast series, that went like way in the beginning, was the idea of hiding files. In order to hide files, the, the rootkit would do something similar. It would essentially, it, the technology is called hooking or filtering. It would, it would hook or filter the, the file enumeration um, functions or API, application programming interface, which all of the operating system uses in order to like make a directory listing. So when when a program wants to do a directory listing or find a file or open a file, it it says give me the first file in the directory and then it makes a series of calls to to obtain successive files. Well, the rootkit would intercept those functions that the operating system is offering to itself and everyone else. And it would, if it sees itself about to be returned, it would say, whoops, let's not give up our own identity, but instead we'll make a a request for the next file after us and return that. So the idea is a directory listing that would have shown the rootkit files no longer does. So the root so these are traditional rootkit technologies that are are well understood and in every case and this was Joanna's point in every case they are they're dependent upon specific OS structure um, knowledge and they're using a hack or a kludge in order to obscure their presence in the system and, and 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 her real point is once you know what that hack or kludge is the rootkit is detectable and and that's the you, big you, you point. detect it by seeing the traces of what it's doing not by seeing it well, or for example, you would you would you would come up. For example, say it, it was it was hiding um, from having disconnected it from the process list. Well, there are other ways of enumerating processes, and so you know you would you would compare one one way of enumerating versus following the list, and you would discover a discrepancy that would reveal the rootkit. Or, or you would, for example, go and directly access the hard drive to to do what the operating system does when it's making a directory listing, and you would compare your result of direct access to the hard drive to the to the interface the operating system gives. And again, a discrepancy reveals what's going. In fact, that's, that's exactly what the revealer does. Exactly, that's exactly what 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 um, Mark's uh, rootkit revealer. Um, it, it's the process it used. So, so, so how does her, Blue Pill get around this? Well, and, and so her, her final point is that um, re- when rootkits are open source and you can see exactly how they work, you're able to come up with a way of detecting them. And her whole point is that 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 Blue Pill can be open source. I mean, she could completely publish what she's done, and it is no help. How come? And, how does that? Well, how do it work? And the way it works is it is it is it is a fundamentally different kind of rootkit because it isn't relying on obscurity of any sort or or a hack or a kludge. It's simply 
using the hardware which has now been made available in the 64-bit architectures. And it's one of those things where, you know, the moment Intel and AMD and Microsoft learned of this, they're like, oh, no. I mean, it, it, hadn't, it hadn't occurred to them, unfortunately, which is why Joanna's work is, is so important because, you know, they're all excited about adding new features. Well, again, another fundamental principle of security, which never lets us down, is, you know, new features really need to be looked at carefully from a security standpoint. So, so all Blue Pill is really doing is taking advantage of the next generation hypervisory hardware built into, at this point, AMD's next generation chips, um, the, the, um, the SVM Pacifica technology that is now in those chips that Vista was running on, and she just turned it on. She said, okay, you know, I'm going to be a hypervisor. And the operating system said, "Yeah, okay. Well, we don't really know what that is, but have a ni- have, have a nice day." <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so, so then people were saying, "Wait a minute, you know, be, being undetectable is impossible." And so, so there were a bunch of you know a bunch of fur flew, and and Joanna has defended herself admirably because she's raised the point that you know once you are in this. In this driver's seat, as the hypervisor of the hardware, you know, you can control everything. And so people said, okay, wait a minute. Um, uh, What about the timing of instructions which you're having to filter? Because, for example, there's an instruction um, uh, uh, RDMSR, which uh, allows you to read the MSR register. That's one of the hardware registers. And bit 12 of of the EFER register in there, I know this makes your eyes cross, but it just, you know, this stuff doesn't really matter, except bit 12 says whether the processor is in SVM mode. That right. is, has this super this hypervisory mode been active? So she she once she slips in to this role, basically turning the SVM mode on and then immediately acquiring ownership of it, what she needs to do is prevent anybody else who wants to check to see if this system has been blue-pilled, she needs to to fake the bit of that register and show that it's off, which means that she needs to intercept anyone's attempt to read the register. Well, in doing so, she's inherently changing the timing of, ah. of, of that read. So she and, may be able to trick us, but we can tell because it took longer than it should have. At exactly. In fact, in in her studies, for example, it there there's another uh, there's another instruction which actually I use all the time called RDTSC read timestamp. Mm-hmm. Uh, RDTSC is a super high resolution timer. Actually, what it is is it's a clock counter. So you literally get this 64 bit or I guess in the next generation 128 bit count of the number of clock 
crystal cycles. I mean, it runs at 3 gigahertz or 2.4 gigahertz or whatever speed your system is running. So, I mean, it's like infinite resolution because it's the clock cycle of the processor. There is right, no right. higher resolution. So, so for example, this this RDMSR, the, the, the attempt to read this register, normally takes... Not about 90 ticks, 90 clock cycles. But her filtered version, when she's in the system, takes about 2,100. See? We can tell. Exactly. So, except, except, oh. except, <laughs> except that there's also something in this SVM mode uh, called the TSC offset. Yes. And it is, it is an offset from what the TSC, this timestamp, returns. Oh, so you could change the result. So exactly. Uh-huh. So she filters. She filters the read to the this this timestamp. She also intercepts that, and she subtracts the difference of the time she knows she's going to take. So she simply sets the offset to negative twenty ten, and so when. Her instruction, which takes which takes twenty one hundred ticks, has twenty ten subtracted from it. It returns ninety. So so again, I mean, it's a perfect example of how once you're in this hypervisory mode, even I mean, anything software does in the system, even like trying to to, to measure the time of things, even time can be faked. Now, you know, the first thing I thought when I was reading this is, okay, you need an external time reference. We need, you know, something not in the system, outside of the system's control. You know, so like NTP, the network time protocol on, on, on the Internet. Go, you know, get a real piece of time data. But that, use it, that comes through the network interface and through the operating system and can be faked as well. And so then she carries on the argument that, okay, wait a minute. Um, how about having the user tell how long something takes? Because, for example, Use a stopwatch. <laughs> well, essentially, exactly that. Yeah. The, 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 some program would have to say, okay, user, push this button and let's see how long it takes for, for, for me to do a certain amount of work. Like re- do this read th- this th- this RDMSR a million times, and I mean it literally has to be about that much. So if it's really only taking ninety ticks, a million of those nineties would be ninety million. Right. If it's actually taking twenty one hundred clock ticks, a million of those is going to be obviously way longer. Right. But I mean, but you know, we're down to the point that that that's the kind of 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 detection fallback that is necessary. But you could do that. I mean, there is that would be. There's no way that they could prevent, you know, a manual detection timing of some kind. I can't see how right. she could prevent that. On the other hand, how many people are going to do that? Well, and and the whole the whole point of blue pill is that you you by mistake you run this. And it's silently. I mean, what's so very cool about this? You know, Microsoft uh, Research has has got something called Subvert, which is a similar sort of like you know boot time subversion 
of the OS. The research guys did this, but it's boot time, and it requires writing things on the drive. So anything that's going to survive a boot needs to be on the hard drive. Oh. Blue, Blue Pill rec- needs to record nothing on oh. the drive. It's on-the-fly software that if you touched it by mistake, suddenly, you know, I mean, and that's what's so cool. I mean, I love it, you know, the, of course, all the analogies to the, the Matrix, matrix right, yeah. because, you know, you don't, I mean, nothing changes. Your screen doesn't even go, burp, you know, it's like, wait, what, what, what just happened there? Right. I mean, nothing happens, but now it's underneath your operating system, controlling your hardware and is is undetectable except through extreme measures. So so she makes the point that, you know, what are you going to do? Do a test that's going to take 10 minutes to run every hour? To see if in the intervening hour your system has been blue pilled, I mean, there's no yeah. there's no practical way to detect it on the fly. Now, of course, Microsoft is not happy about this because you know here they are. Oh, Vista's the most secure operating system ever. Well, we already know. Listeners of Security Now know how I feel about statements like that. I mean, they are they are ludicrous <laughs> on their face. Yeah, yeah. You cannot declare something to be secure. And here co- along comes Joanna and says, uh, uh, well, no. Could you run, okay, since we're going to use virtualization to attack the machine, could you then run your machine in a virtual machine as well and kind of protect it from the outside world? Well, she makes the point double virtualization. That, in other words, um, it's it's probably the case that you know again now that Microsoft is aware of this and AMD and Intel are like, oh, this is maybe this is a little too powerful. I mean, obviously there are there are very wonderful good purposes to which this can be put. The idea being that that well, I mean, this is what VMware is a little upset about. You know, a lot of their proprietary technology was working around the lack of of really good hardware support for virtualization, which is now coming in all of our 64-bit platforms. So, so you know, and and there it's going to end up being subsumed by the OS. So, I mean, it's it's sort of a next level of of responsibility that the operating system will need to take. Um, Joanne makes the point that, well, maybe you could turn it off in the BIOS, but if you turn it off in the BIOS, what's the point of having it? Right. In fact, you you can on many uh, machines that uh, uh, are coming with this kind of technology, turn it off in the BIOS. In fact, by default, I think it's turned off. But you're right. Then you don't get the benefits of the virtualization. Yep. So, you know, again, it's 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 that same sort of security cat and mouse game yeah. that that we always end up playing. But it does but, underscore really uh, I think with and, and by the way, I've seen the debates over this and they go on and on and they are not over. There are plenty of people who say no, no, this isn't true. But the, it does underscore the risk of creating a hypervisor mode in general. Yes, it is it is an extremely powerful mode and you know what will probably happen is that Microsoft will instead of doing nothing with it which I guess is what Vista was doing will you know they will they will turn on uh, the SVM mode on the AMD and they will themselves preemptively filter those things that are necessary to take over that mode it, they just they hadn't and again, we can thank Joanna for doing this this year and not two years from now. 
because you know Microsoft would have blissfully gone on right. and shipped Vista with this massive blue pill hole in its security, and then everyone would have been scampering around. The chief critic of this is a guy named Anthony Liguori, who is working on a hypervisor for IBM, uh, and obviously he. <laughs> He doesn't like the idea of criticizing hypervisors. But in your opinion, is the real problem that the that hypervisor exists at all? Um, no. Um, the real problem is that it's new. And we don't know what new yeah. new is bad. Yep. New is bad for security. Yeah. Um, in, you know, in a year. Just as you were talking about Vista's virgin stack. Exactly. Same issue. Yeah, exactly. And so so along came. I mean, bottom line, I think this hardware technology is going to be fantastic because it will ultimately allow much more, you know, what it really means is simpler, easier, and absolutely zero performance penalty for doing multiple OS solutions. And we like that. Oh, that's that's a win. Is it truly yes. zero? I mean, it really is. It is as zero as you can get. Wow. I mean, and that's what they've done is that they they've they've absolutely minimized um, you know all of the overhead associated with with any kind of multi OS virtualization. Your discussion of all this has really inspired me uh, to think about uh, using virtualization more uh, thoroughly. You know, right now I use Windows and Mac machines, and I have to use them roughly equally because I do. For instance, we record this show on Windows. I edit it on Windows. Because we're using Skype. Uh, well, I, well, I use Skype on the Mac. I don't want them on the same machine and so forth. Anyway, I, ah. but uh, more and more I'm thinking, uh, especially with VMware coming out with a solution for OS X, that it, maybe I should buy one of these new Mac Pros, uh, which has so much horsepower, uh, and just and just have, run run both. Get a big screen and have Windows side-by-side side with the Mac on the same system. Sure. You know, I mean, just it's really interesting what's happening with virtualization. Not just Windows, by the way. Linux as well. I mean, I could have... I have I have three operating systems and and of necessity three machines right now with a with a KVM switch boy it'd be nice just to combine all that into one box. Well, and you know, I mean there has always been this this big divide between for example Mac and Windows. Right. I, I think I've mentioned before that I've got I've got a a friend who's not computer literate. She st- struggles with what do I click the right or the left mouse button? Right. You know, and I I'd, I'd always wanted to move her over to a Mac where I think she'd just be more comfortable except that she uh, is she, a realtor who needs to access, right. you know, one application under windows all, and so, all people all users care about is applications they don't care about operating systems that's not enthusiasts care about operating systems but we're a minority yeah users just want to get job, get the job done and 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 hopefully not get hacked in the process yeah i really think that i mean long term this vir- the virtualization is going to be a very cool thing as as we talked about at the very beginning of our series on virtual machine technology you know back when we were using dos and we now had then with the, and and the 386 chip came along there were programs like software carousel qemm you know and 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 top view that allowed us with a single keystroke to just click between apps Applications. Yeah, it was I mean, really slick. It was it great. was phenom- it was phenomenal yeah, back then. Yeah, and and so now we're talking about literally clicking between operating systems. Yeah, I like. I that. mean, imagine if you had a hotkey where I mean, and we're talking robust. So being because it's supported by the hardware. Well, if you had and, a and even more secure too, right? Because if anything goes wrong, you throw it out. 
Oh, and see that? Yeah, that's a very good point. And in fact, in our in in next week's episode, we're going to be talking about sandboxing and I mean and the issues of sandboxing, which is sort of lightweight virtualization. And I mean, and it's all about security. So when you when you have when you have truly independent operating systems and and the hardware is supporting the barrier between them rather than software that is always subject to modification and subversion when you've got hardware doing that that is hardwired you know there isn't any way if everything else is done correctly for them to get to each other yeah, but okay. i mean but i love the idea you know because i mean there are solutions which kind of work and are flaky and it's like oh, okay well i'm you know, and i think it's probably the thing that has put you off of virtualization until now, Leo. You know when, when, when we've been talking Slow about and it. unreliable, absolutely. Exactly. But imagine a really, really robust technology where where you could just hit a hotkey and your screen just goes click to I Windows. Kinda, I kind of have that now with Parallels on the MacBook, and I, I feel pretty good about. Uh, and and the new new version coming out will be even better. So I feel like there's good. What I really feel like is we're making really good progress in this area. This is a hot yep. area right now. Now, yep. should we worry about Blue Pill? No. And, and and that's really, I mean, uh, Joanna raised the alarm. Microsoft got caught unaware. They've they promised they are going to close this hole down, Good. which which must mean they will turn on SVM technology and take ownership of it and filter the instructions just like Joanna was doing. They'll do that, their own blue pill, in effect. They, basically, yes. They are, they, the Vista will come pre-blue-pilled. That's often the way to fight these uh, uh, low-level Ring Zero hacking tools is to is to is to be one of your own <laughs> well to to get there first get there first it's al- yes it's always about who gets there first get there first interesting and that's why it's so great that there's this robust feisty smart uh community out there that is challenging microsoft uh, people might sometimes take umbrage at the fact that people are uh, constantly attacking microsoft but that which does not kill you makes you stronger i think that this is really what we need it's just it's kind of analogous to an independent uh, free press. Uh, well, I, I, will, I will make a prediction here on Security Now, episode number, what are we, 54? 54. 54, the first episode of our second year. Uh, or the or second the, episode the, of the our second year. Our, the second episode of our <laughs> second year. Wait, did I, did I number from zero or for one? Um, the, the, that the hypervisory technology will be compromised. Because, you know, for example, remember in the old days with DOS viruses, there were these things called boot sector viruses? Yeah, yeah. All, because Mike, the hardware... Michelangelo. Yep. Because the hardware is now so powerful, a boot sector virus to, uh, to pre-acquire SVM rights could happen. Mm. And so, again, who gets there first? If something gets into the hardware before Vista boots, then it can fool Vista. And uh, you can just see hackers salivating at the idea. I mean, just, just tackling it because it's there. Oh, boy. Yeah, I know. Oh, boy. Or EFI, or getting into the BIOS or the new EFI. Uh, even, even better than a boot sector virus. You could... if, you get, if you can get control of the hardware before the OS boots, yeah. now the hardware is powerful enough that you know it really needs to be looked at carefully fascinating stuff as always you bring up the good issues uh this is one that's very hot right now in the security community thanks to uh, her presentation at uh, black hat 
and uh, everybody's just uh, buzzing about it. And I do hope Microsoft does something about it. But now you know. Oh, uh, they'll try. Next week. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, sandboxing. Okay. More virtualization. Yep. It's the hot topic right now, and we cover it very, very, as always with Steve, in great detail, very thoroughly. We, we know that's what you want. This is uh, one of the things I love about podcasting is that we can cover this stuff in detail. It's not the seven-minute segment that we had to do on, on Tech TV. We can, we can really cover it in depth and, uh, and give you the information you want. And by the way, uh, if you want to follow it more closely, don't forget Elaine makes transcripts of every episode so you can actually read uh, read along, which I think is a really uh, helpful way to find out what's, uh, what Steve's talking about. And, of course, you own it so you can play it back again and again. Lots of people share it with their friends, too. Support the podcast by visiting twit.tv and donating just a couple of bucks a month. Not only supports Security Now, but almost a dozen other podcasts and two more to come by the end of the month. So we're very excited uh, you know, about this. Of course, as we add podcasts, our costs go up. We have to get new equipment uh, and so forth. But uh, we really feel like um, it's important to kind of get all of these podcasts on the air for you. So, well, and you're talking about getting a T1 now too. So. Well, and that's yeah. I mean, there, there's always a little more. Uh, you know, I always want to. <laughs> what's people have been good? They've been very generous. The donations are, are strong enough to support uh, things like, you know, spending you know a little bit a month to have very high quality uh, bandwidth. We lost a podcast because uh, the other day because a DSL went out. And I'm thinking I'm I'm basing this whole network on consumer grade DSL. Wait a minute, maybe we ought to get a T1 in here. So well, yeah. and people really appreciate I, I think the the show quality. I I I see mail from people who say you know that the, the Twit family of podcasts sounds better than any other podcasts, and I mean it makes a difference just in you know in in the comfort of listening. I uh, yeah, well that's of course a, a real goal of mine, and and I'm not happy yet, and uh, there are things we can do. Uh, but they cost everything costs. So we want we want you to be happy. <laughs> your donations help, and it is only two dollars a month. So please go to twit.tv and press that button every month. A couple of bucks. Think of it as buying Steve a latte once a month. That's <laughs> not like I like I need more just caffeine. What you need. We do thank our sponsors who also make it possible. The way it works is the donations go to infrastructure. The sponsorship goes to the hosts, so, the, so that they don't. Um, currently, you know, they're donating their time, and uh, I'd like them to get paid too. Uh, for Steve. You get a little money every once in a while from Astaro Corporation, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. Very uh, good company that have that came forward early on and, and have really been committed to this podcast. Uh, and we really thank them. If your small or medium business network needs superior protection from spam, from viruses, from hackers, of course, complete VPN capabilities, intrusion protection, content filtering, and an industrial strength firewall. All in an easy-to-use, very simple, high-performance appliance. I have one, and I the 120. It's just incredible. This thing is a rock, and it makes me feel much more secure. Contact Astaro at Astaro, A-S-T-A-R-O dot com, or call 877-4-A-S-T-A-R-O to schedule a free trial of the Astaro Security Gateway Appliance in your business. You know, another uh, group I'd like to thank, and I don't think I thank him enough. I really should thank him every single podcast. We do at the beginning is, uh, is AOL uh, because they do such a great job. Without them, really, this, this network would not exist. The, uh, the bandwidth provided l- over a terabyte a day, a terabyte a day from the folks at AOL Radio. AOL.com slash podcasting. A tip of the hat uh, to Jeff Graham and uh, the server guys and everybody at AOL Radio. We thank you for your support, too. Steve Gibson's uh, website is grc.com. Let's not forget that because uh, that is that is Steve's day job, and we want to make sure not only because of Spinrite, 
which is uh, Steve's great product for file and recovery of your hard drives. I mean, it is just a hard, the ultimate hard drive tool, which everyone should have in their toolkit. I certainly do. <laughs> You know, Leo, I, 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 was, I was thinking about what I said last week about how I've stopped uh, putting the testimonials on that page because the page is getting so long and we've got so many of them. That's I great. thought, wait, maybe people are going to stop sending them. But no, I wanted to, <laughs> I, well, it, just, it just makes me feel so good to hear these stories of success. So I'll by all means. That. I'll vouch for that. Steve will come to, to, to me when we get together in Toronto or at other times and says, look at these. <laughs> He's got this list. He, it re- I think is, is, that really gratifies Steve almost more than anything is to hear yeah. from you. Yeah, it's really yeah I, love, I love that it's able to help people so much. So by all means, you know, send them if you want. I love, I love to read your stories of success with Spinrite. When you write software, uh, it's, it is, I think for anybody who codes, it, it, it's, it's more than just a job. It's a very gratifying to know that your code is being used to good, uh, benefit by, by people. S P I N R I T E dot info to see what people are doing with Spinrite and maybe to get an idea of what you might want to do. GRC.com to get your copy. But of course there are also many very useful free security utilities there, including shields up, which I use every time I set up a new router to check my router. I got all greens on my new D link. I'm so happy. Yay. Stealth out of the box. All green. Uh, that's nice, a nice feeling. And uh, that's where you'll also find the 16 kilobit version of this show for the bandwidth impaired and Elaine's great transcripts. If you want to read along, follow along with sing along with Steve. <laughs> it's like Mitch Miller kind of follow the bouncing security. <laughs> Anybody else knows who he is except you. And <laughs> you know, in 20 years, we're going to be doing this <laughs> a couple of old coots and people are just going to say, we don't know. We have no idea what their references are, but it's just their relics and, and we honor them and we let them do it. <laughs> I have a feeling we'll be in a museum somewhere. Steve Gibson, have a great week and we will see you uh, next week for more virtualization on uh, Thursday, every Thursday. And I hope you're not seasick right now, Leo, wherever you are out on the ocean. (laughs) I'm Leo Laporte for Steve Gibson. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.